Hey friends, welcome back. Midweek as we make our way through Exodus. Uh, we are getting into a section that is going to be a challenge uh, probably to listen to, but also to teach. The next several chapters of Exodus are collections of laws um, that are grouped in various under various subjects. I don't know that we will go through each of these uh, verse by verse, though we'll try to be fair to what's in there. Some of them are going to be fairly difficult. I think tomorrow, right away, we get into a tough section. Uh, today, we'll start with this section called the law concerning the altar. But I, I think, Michael, before we get there, just some introductory mar- remarks. Um, there are some themes that I think maybe people can look for as we go through this section of Exodus. And I, I'm going to guess that unless you're a big-time Old Testament scholar, this part of Exodus we're coming into is nobody's favorite. I don't think anybody says, oh, that's my absolute favorite part of the book. Um, having said that, there are some things we can be on the lookout for. And th- there's a, a certain danger in equating laws with moralism. And, and there is moral here, and there are ethics that are vitally important to God on behalf of the people. But this is these are bigger than just simply personal right and wrong. This has to do with relationships within the community, and it has to do largely with the relationship between God and the community and the idea that if Israel is going to be God's people, they need to function in a way that doesn't cause God's wrath to come upon them. As as God is unable to tolerate disobedience and sin, there is a kind of don't upset the apple cart sort of feeling to some of these laws. And I think we'll see a little bit of that today, Michael. But we we see in these laws uh, more than just do the right thing. It's do the right thing because I'm your God, and if you don't do the right thing, I'm going to hold you accountable. And I think, you know, that isn't generally the way law functions for us in the church. But I think as we read this section, I, I would argue that it is pretty deeply ingrained. So one of the things that Christians struggle with as we come to a section of the scripture like this, Clint, is that we tend to not have as robust of a history understanding the rabbinical tradition, which in many ways is responsible for both preserving these laws and then also for interpreting them. And what you may or may not know is that within the community of the rabbis throughout time, you have had a very robust conversation about the laws. In fact, in Jesus's time, there was a substantial practice of debating interpretation, of going back and forth and having an interlocutor and finding in the spirit of the debate the place where the law came to life. The danger of that, Clint, was that it became obsessed with the jot and tittle of the law, right? It was all about the words themselves and not about the spirit of it. But in the positive frame, it also gave the law a kind of living spirit. It it brought it into the people's lives, and it made that law real in the midst of community, in debate, in conversation, in people going back and forth from a variety of perspectives, 
and pushing and pulling on the law and seeing where it took them. Where we make the mistake as Christians without that in our tradition is we come to read texts like what we're going to have in the future, and we find them to be very staid, very black and white, very locked down, that this is what it says, and so therefore this is what it means. And we fail to have the same kind of muscle, that built-in muscle memory of practicing, reliving, debating, uh, having a spirited conversation about what this looks like in our own time and place. What what that did well in the midst of that conversation in between the rabbis and between those who debated the law was it gave them an opportunity to engage with the spirit of the law. And that is, I think, what hangs over the conversations that we have ahead, Clint, is are we able to look into these things which are so drastically different from our experience of the world, separated by thousands of years, separated by cultural traditions, separated by, some, in some cases, deeply held social and family values, and in the midst of it, to see how the spirit of God's relationship between God's people and between God, between God's people and each other, between God's people and their neighbor— or their worker, or their enemy. All of these are encompassed by the expanse of the laws. And, you know, to talk about it with that broad overview is easy. To talk about the concrete laws themselves, I think, is going to be challenging because they're specific. And in that specificity, I think we get lost and we find it difficult to get a foothold. Yeah, I I think there are aspects of this whole conversation that are tough, Michael. On one hand, there will be laws that seem clear, that make sense. There will be laws that that clearly speak to ethical, moral behavior. And then there will be laws that seem strange to us, either because they seem harsh, because they seem woefully outdated. Um, in our conversation, for instance, there are, we'll see tomorrow, there are laws concerning slavery. And we should not read that as some sort of condoning of slavery, but we should see it as what God expects of these people in the midst of their community. And one of the fascinating things, I think, about this section of law, this is also true of a book like Numbers or maybe particularly Leviticus, is it feels haphazard to us to see a a law about murder next to a law about helping a donkey. It, 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 it feels like whiplash often to hear these laws that on one hand seem clear and moral and important, and then a law about keeping a festival. What I think is helpful and what I think is actually even inspiring is that for the Israelite community, every aspect of their life is part of their relationship with God, how they use their days, how they treat their neighbors, how they treat their enemies, whether they keep the festival, how they uh, perform their sacrifices, what they put on the altar, what they make the altar out of. There's no aspect of their life that they don't feel is under the lens of their relationship with God. And we often, I think, don't think that way. Christians I I do think in general terms about all of our life is a reflection of our faith. But the idea that there are are these huge 
variations in the kind of laws that we encounter here, I, I think is difficult for us, Michael, but I, I think one of the things we learn from it is how completely immersed the idea of obedience is in in the life of Israel. They they don't see any aspect of their life that doesn't have something to do with their relationship with God. Yeah, not only does it all connect, but it all has a bearing on their ability to be connected to God and to trust God. That's maybe some of the winsome character of the book of Exodus is how honest it is about the people's struggles, Clint. If you're going to tell a hero story about the people of Israel, Exodus is a tough telling of that hero story. If it's all about how they conquered Pharaoh, how the slaves got away and made their own kingdom, this isn't a great telling of that story. It is rather a telling of what they believe to be the God who calls them out of Egypt, who demands trust and calls them into a way that's of life that's ordered and that is meaningful. I it it's a reversal of what you would expect. If it was about making these folks look good, it does a horrible job of it. If it makes if it's about making God look like the one who's both strong and faithful, it does so with extreme excellence. And I think that as we come now to this section of altar in particular, you got to remember we're still in this mountainous moment. Like literally, we there's been this shroud over the mountain. God's been talking to Moses and the people have been overhearing it. They've been overwhelmed by it. God's given the commands, the, those 10 commandments. And now we're going to get into the daily life, the the stuff that you do as part of your own practice and habits. And this is the way that the people are called to order that life so that it points to God. And you know, we'll see that emphasis upon coming back to God over and over again. Yeah, and and one last word, just because we'll see it here in this text, we'll go through quickly. But the other thing I think that helps to keep in mind is that Exodus isn't particularly interested in explaining these laws. God isn't particularly interested in giving the people the reasons behind them. There are foods that are acceptable and holy, and there are foods that aren't. And God doesn't have to say why. There is this idea of separation, of of keeping the good away from the bad. There is this idea of not profaning. We'll see that language in a moment. But, But the Israelites live under the reality that the law expresses the goodness of God and stands against what isn't godly, and it doesn't feel very compelled to shake that out and make us understand it, only to paint the picture of what it means for the people. And so there will be times where we may find ourselves kind of shaking our head and wringing our hands and saying, well, we, we don't we don't understand this law, but they endeavored to live by it. So let I think we'll get a little bit of an example. Let me read a few verses, and then we'll, we'll circle back to them. The Lord said to Moses, thus say to the Israelites, you have seen for yourself that I spoke with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver alongside me, nor shall you make for yourself gods of gold. You need make for me only an altar of earth and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your offerings of well-being, your sheep, 
and your oxen, and to every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. But if you make for me an altar of stone, do not build it of hewn stones, for if you use a chisel upon it, you profane it. You shall not go up by the steps of my altar so that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. So uh, here we have, you know, a, a very interesting place to begin, a place that is at the center of worship. You won't have idols. Don't make silver images. Don't make gold images. In fact, all I need is an altar of earth, a place for you to leave your sacrifices, and I will honor that. I will honor it in all the places that I make my name known. But then there's this very interesting line at the end. that If you choose to make a stone altar, don't put a chisel on the stone because that somehow profanes it. Now, we, I think, in this time and place, don't perhaps understand why. Maybe they didn't either. But there is this idea of natural, of whole. Uh, again, it is clear that God need doesn't need a stone altar, but if the people choose to build one, they should build it in a way that is proper. Why is it proper? Because God says it's proper. That that's all they need to know, and they should stay off the altar so that their nakedness, their in other words, being exposed, their sinfulness may not be on it. And so, uh, you know, right away, I think we have an example of several aspects of this conversation, Michael. So, a New Testament example here, it's not a one to one, but there is this inclination within the human heart when one comes to a place that is a mountaintop spiritual experience when one has a particularly meaningful spiritual experience it is easy for us to want to make that place the sacred thing and here this emphasis upon the place of worship should be natural it should be unadorned uh, in fact don't be creating a place where you have to be going up steps where you, where you have these beautiful stone blocks. No, God prefers a place in its natural beauty because there's a sense in which it for, uh, closes upon the human's desire to make the place greater. And the New Testament example of that par excellence, of course, is Peter, who wants to build booths uh, at the top of that Mount of Transfiguration, this idea, hey, this has been a beautiful place, Jesus. Let's build a worshipful place here. And Jesus has no part of that. It is in many ways, I think, Jesus restating the spirit of what we have here. And there are other parts. This just happens in Old Testament reading and Bible study. You come across things that just strike you as odd. And I think verse... 26, here's a great example of that, uh, so that your nakedness may not be exposed by it. And when that happens, you have a few options. One is you just read by it and say, that was weird. Another is you dig into it a little bit with the idea of trying to figure out, you know, what do scholars point out is happening here? And mm -hmm. like you uh, pointed out, I think helpfully, Clint, this idea of exposing our sinfulness, I think it's right down the right path. I'd also add to that, you know, we forget that this is being written in a time where Israel has tens, hundreds of people, both inside and outside its circle, foreigners, who worship gods in very different ways than what the people of Israel do. And this is not part of our modern experience per se. I think we could find some interesting parallels. But we don't think of religious practice sexually, not in the common sort of religious experience. 
That is not the case in the ancient world, where actually that's a substantial part of religious observance in a lot of different cultures. What you may just pass by here, verse 26, so that your nakedness may not be exposed, is actually in some ways revolutionary because it says that this isn't a place for humans to come to for their own pleasure. It's not all about your own uh, sort of goals and your own desires. No, this is a place where you worship God and God alone, that God is the greatest experience. And you come to this place with faith and trust in that God. It makes sense if you understand the oppositional nature of this, that this is against the other gods, but it may not make the sense or make sense to us if we don't know that. Yeah. And so much of the book of Exodus from this point on is going to be written against the backdrop of the Canaanites, the ones who are in the land that Israel hopes to occupy. And um, if memory serves me right, Michael, there were instances where the Canaanites did in fact worship Naked, And so um, often when there is an obscure reference like this, it is likely that Israel is looking at the practices of another people and God is telling them, I do not want you to emulate that. I, I don't want you to worship like that. I don't want you to make idols like that. I don't want you to, to practice your faith in that way. The other thing, last thing that I find is interesting about this, Michael, we we think of the laws as permanent and and many of them are right do not murder do not we just went through the 10 commandments those have stood the test of time what is interesting is that we we sometimes struggle with the idea that there are other laws that are seasonal or pertain to a particular moment in Israel's life a couple of books down the road from Exodus, we're going to get extensive records of building the temple. And the temple is not natural and simple. The temple is ornate. It is carved. It is hewn. It is sculpted. And, and so this isn't a kind of all-time bias against the idea of building something permanent and and chiseling. This is the moment that they are in as wilderness people and not allowing themselves to um, get pulled astray or to get um, distracted from the main point, which is worship is and sacrifice is in the honor of God. And so um, we'll try to point out those places where that kind of thing happens. That's really, really helpful. And my only contribution to that point that you just made, Clint, because I think that is even more important than we have time to flush out here today, is the maybe a theological word that might help us to understand that is the idea of theological accommodation, the idea that God accommodates the fact that we're human. God understands that we're just flesh and blood. And so for these people, when God gives them a command, when God gives them a law, when God gives them boundaries, he does so fully aware of where they are and what they need. And so God accommodates the wilderness people and what you're going to find later on in the narratives is God is also willing to accommodate them when they call for a king. It's explicit. This isn't a good idea. You shouldn't do it. But God is willing to recognize the people's desire, and God is providentially even able to work through that move in history. And So I think that it's really helpful to remember that 
as we read these laws, it's less about trying to go back in time and fully understand everything about the context of these people. Some of that is irrecoverable. The point here is to understand what is the tenor, what is the kind, what is the nature of the relationship that God wants to establish with his people, and how is that same God at work establishing that kind of relationship with us? And how is God accommodating our moment and working within our own time to give us our own boundaries that we might live faithfully as he has in this place? It is a beautiful dynamic. It's it's connected to the text. It also relies upon the community and the voice of the Spirit. There's a lot happening as we interpret this together and, and hope that you'll join us as we go. Yeah, it's a good it's a good word, Michael. Keep in mind, and I think we tried to say this uh, pretty explicitly in the Ten Commandments, that the laws, as important as they may be, are never about the law themselves. They are about the way in which God and the people relate in those areas of life. They are to do with the responsibility of the people to be God's people and therefore act in ways, live in ways that honor God. It, it is not the law itself that matters. It is the relationship that the law points to. And and that that is a that is a difficult way to read the law, but I think it is the preferred. I think that's the best way to understand Old Testament law. Yeah, and I think the case for that will be made as we go. So thanks many, for, many times. Yeah. Thanks for being with us. We will see you all tomorrow. Thanks for being with us. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.